Hey, welcome to the podcast, today's Voices of Conservation Science, and I'm Chris Guy. I'm your host for today's podcast. This podcast focuses on people doing science that's then used to conserve natural resources. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. And today I'm here with Taylor Proyle, and she is a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. Taylor, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. It warmed up. It's in the it's in the twenties today, I think. It might have made it to the twenties. I was inside all day, so <laughs> that I don't didn't, didn't matter. <laughs> yeah. But it was like last week, wasn't it? Like in the negative teens. Oh, yeah. And so we were thirty some degrees warmer, so yeah. it makes twenty degrees feel really nice. Balmy, tropical. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't even want to think about that because <laughs> <clears throat> we're in Bozeman, Montana, and it is not tropical. No. So uh, Taylor, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I got I grew up in Wisconsin, and I got my bachelor's degree in ecology from Northern Michigan University in 2016. And then I moved to Wyoming for work, and then I ended up moving to Montana. And then I got into grad school. So you got your degree at... Where? Northern, Northern Michigan Northern University. Michigan. Where's that located? Marquette, Michigan. Marquette. And then you went and worked for the Forest Service. And what did you do at the Forest Service? Well, I actually worked for the Forest Service when I was in high school. Oh. I was an intern. Um, but after I graduated with my bachelor's, I worked in Yellowstone. Oh, what did you do in Yellowstone? I worked on the Lake Trout, Lake Trout Removal Project. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, I know a little bit about that. I know. I actually was an intern on that program the year before, too. Okay. And so were you uh, helping run the nets? or? Yeah. Well, when I was an intern, I worked with the contractors primarily on the telemetry project. Like, as an intern, you you know, one day you might work on the contract crews and be kind of an observer on the boat. And then the next day, maybe go out and track Lee Trout. And then when I was a technician, I worked on the park service gill netting crews. Mm-hmm. And I, I started as just a technician. Then by the end of the season, I was running one of the boats. There you go. Which was pretty cool. <laughs> so what, what got you to Yellowstone? What, what? Um, I applied for, I did, I had one park service internship prior. I worked in sleeping bear dunes, national lakeshore. And then I started looking at jobs through the student conservation association. And I got the Yellowstone Park internship. Nice. Had you been to Yellowstone before? A lot, yeah. yeah. I went there every year as a kid. Basically, we my parents spent a lot of time out west, so they wanted us to do that as well. Nice. So Sleeping Bears, where's that at? I'm not familiar with that one. It's on the Leelanau Peninsula, which is by, it's like the west coast of the lower peninsula of Michigan. Oh, nice. I bet that's beautiful. It's Gorgeous. And yeah. I was the water quality intern, so I just hiked around to all the beaches taking water samples, testing for E. coli. <laughs> there you go. So there's probably less people that go there than Yellowstone. Oh yeah. yeah. It's still a lot of well, you know, proportional to yeah. the size. It still feels really busy. Mm-hmm. And it's it is like people live there. It's like a functional it's not like a national park. Yeah. Where it's just a closed system, but Yellowstone is like bonkers crazy. So. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it keeps getting more and more crazy yeah. each year, which I don't quite understand. There's going to be a tipping point at some point, I think, where 
It's going to be some kind of lottery system. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I know yeah. there. When I worked there, they were. I mean, it's just this big conundrum because you want to preserve natural resources for the use of the public, and if the public can't access them, then like, what's the point? Right. So they're just kind of on this weird line where they are like, well, should we start limiting buses? Should we start limiting these big caravans that come through? And it's just like impossible question. Yeah. And, you know, when you're on the roads, it is, it's, it's crazy and chaotic, but you don't have to walk very far into the park on a trail and you can have it to yourself. No, I think the statistic is like 1% or what is it? You only have to get 95% of people don't get a mile off the road. Yeah. So if you, and people just congregate at the trails that are like handicap accessible yeah, or like exactly. near a bathroom, <laughs> near a gas station so I can that's get right. a snack afterwards. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, I can see from your experiences, very interested in, in conservation in the outdoors, but what pursued you to um, want to have a career in conservation? I, well, I grew up being, I think, more of a naturalist. Like, my family is very outdoorsy. My dad is a fish biologist. But I don't, I actually, like, didn't want to go into science until I was, like, a sophomore in college. And I I think I started wanting to be really more liberal arts oriented. I went on foreign exchange in high school and wanted to be like a translator for the UN. And then I started to see how I could. And I also felt like excluded from the sciences being from like a small town, Wisconsin. I don't know. My experience with the sciences in like in an educational setting wasn't mm-hmm. super positive. So I was like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Right. And, um, and my talents were always more in writing and oral communication but then I had really good science teachers my freshman year of college at community college that were just so passionate. And I started to see how there were these gaps between the public and scientists in terms of like trust for scientists was low. Like people weren't super engaged. Like there was kind of a niche maybe mm-hmm. that if I was like, well, I'm really passionate about the outdoors but I'm good at this. Maybe I can combine my passion and what my skills yeah, that's, for this position. That's amazing because it's extremely rev- relevant right now. And and you you caught on it earlier um, about the distrust in science. And I think a big part of it is our are the scientists' inability to do a good job of explaining to the public what we do. Right? We especially in the environment we're in right here at the university, a lot of folks don't know what people are doing in the university. It's kind of this black box, right? People go up to all these, um, you know, old buildings and do things, but we don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And I, I think it was really the first, the first job I ever had working in natural resources was as a watercraft inspector. Mm -hmm. Um, Pretty close to where I grew up, like, north central wisconsin and so basically my job was just to inform the public about invasive species and i really had no power to do anything i didn't even have a wash station i was like there's a wash station over there like 20 miles away if you really want to wash or just leave it in the sun 
Um, and people were so aggressive. Huh. Like they just were like, well, like so many people were like, this is a scam. Like the DNR put this here, like the tribe, like, cause there's a, there's a lot of tribal mm-hmm. land around there and, mm-hmm. you know, spearfishing rights is like huge, hot contested issue. Right. And like people are like, rusty crayfish were introduced by the DNR <laughs> so that the natives could spear more fish. And like, I don't, I don't even know what to say to them because yeah. it's just so like, I'm just wash your boat. Yeah. <laughs> So and distrusting government. Yeah, you know, yeah. And that was really crazy to me. Like before that, I was like, people, people love the outdoors. They mm-hmm. love, they trust the government. The government does good things for us. Mm-hmm. My mom was a public school teacher. So she's yeah. like pro union, pro government. Yeah. I mean, like to some, to some degree, right. but you know, like it just was crazy to me to have that experience. And I was mm-hmm. like, there is definitely a niche for me. If we can have more scientists that can communicate and do good science. Right. Like that is so needed. Clearly. Yes, very, very much so. Well, that's outstanding. <laughs> Keep up the good work. You got your job cut out for you. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that, seeing that progress. Um, so you've touched on it a little bit, you'd, um, especially when you're talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, coming out to uh, Yellowstone with your family, but uh, maybe there's more to that in terms of, who or what was really instrumental in getting you interested in conservation and nature? Well, I think my dad was a really big proponent and his mom, um, when I was, so she, my dad and my mom are from Iowa and my grandparents still live there. So we go back there every year and I thought Iowa was awful as a kid but hey, then hey hey i was born in iowa oh, really? Falls, so was iowa. i i was born in corning oh nice um and i thought it was like so awful but then my grandma shows you know she's a huge birder and yeah. she loves to garden all my grandparents love to garden and she had been recording like bird observations for years Holy cow. and she would be like the orioles are early this year i'm gonna plant my <laughs> beans <laughs> what and that was pretty crazy to me like uh-huh. and then as i started to learn more about science like that's like the first science like people just making observations yeah that's wonderful following a process and then her son my dad mm-hmm. is a fish biologist he went to colorado state and so like um i was born in iowa we moved to colorado i was actually at his graduation his master's degree like <laughs> So that was probably really formative, and yeah. um, we were still remained really close with his college advisor and uh, my dad. I don't think he ever like really pushed it that hard, like be a fish biologist. Mm-hmm. But I think just things you give your kids to do when you're a fish biologist, it's like, hey, go ID some bugs. Like, <laughs> oh, he wants. Can you like age these spines for me? Like, I don't really feel like doing it anymore. <laughs> Man, that's why my kids aren't in the profession. I didn't make them do any of that. (laughs) All the boring stuff. Like, so when I actually started doing professional stuff, I was like, oh, you know, my my standards were already lowered for the menial grunt work I was going to have to do. That's great. So your grandmother and your father instrumental, yeah, in getting you into the into the profession. And I think it was. I was always really into the sciences and conservation biology, but I didn't see like in an academic setting how that would translate, like just Mm -hmm. being a naturalist 
being really into like everyone does science every day the scientific method everyone does that every day exactly and i just thought of it as being so elitist Mm -hmm. like oh like i'm not super good at science i'm not gonna fit in like i don't know (laughs) but so then when i it just took like a roundabout way yeah, so what really turned that corner where you said, uh, you know what, I can do this. I do want to do this. I think, yeah, as I start, I had like really passionate teachers in college, mm-hmm. community college. So there was like five kids in each class. And at first he made me like super interested in algae mm-hmm. and lichen because I was like, oh my God, like this is so cool. And <laughs> nobody knows anything about this. And he was just so passionate. Like I had never seen anyone be that passionate especially about something so boring as <laughs> and now i'm like that's not boring but like when you first are like it's algae like yeah. it seems like it would be boring but yeah. it's not um and he was just so passionate or like like any kind of lichen and mm-hmm. i was like you know that's awesome that's like, cool so yeah. just yeah it's it's the spark that happens from a teacher or a or a parent or something like yeah. that. And it's kind of like all of a sudden the switch goes off. I mean, <clears throat> that, you know, this is something that I can do. Yeah. And right. I think so that like having the teacher, seeing the need in the community from the jobs I started to do mm-hmm. really made me want to pursue it further. Very good. Pursuing a, a, a career in conservation or the sciences has its challenges and, you know, they're, often are many hurdles that you face to get to this position that you're at right now. Um, can you think of any hurdles that, that you had to, you know, get over through um, to get to this point in your career? Yeah. So I think in general, I not, not really being into the sciences very early in my education, I felt like I kind of, didn't fit in once I got into college and was taking my four major classes and I decided that I wanted to do fisheries and ecology and I was really passionate about it but there were so many people that had been basically studying this their whole life in some way being either fishing their whole life or had always known they wanted to do that like they just want to fish every day and be outside every day and they've so they had this huge advantage over me just getting into it when I was basically a junior. Yeah. There was a huge education gap to make up. And then also maybe not really fitting in with your peers can be difficult. Like I like to fish. I like doing outdoorsy things and, but I'm not, I'm not like a trout bro. Like, <laughs> Right. I mean, there's, I mean, you bring up a great point because so many people get in, especially in fish and wildlife programs, which is one of the programs we have at in our uh, ecology department. It seems like so many people get into it because they fished all the time in, you know, in high school and they keep fishing and, and, um, or they're big hunters and that's what drove them to this. And so, you know, you're right. Maybe they know everything about, or they think they know everything about fish until we, <laughs> we, yeah. we show them the way. But you're right. They they have some of that background, if you will. Yeah, and it, it can be difficult to make up that gap. And it can be difficult to break into a group of people who you don't have a lot in common with or might think that you shouldn't be there because as a junior, you decided 
you wanted to do fish biology. And so you have to like kind of fight a little harder to get into research labs, fight a little harder to get internships to compete with these people that maybe have been doing stuff involved with that field for a much longer time. Yeah. And I think there might be, um, uh, I don't even know how to really say this, but a perception maybe of, well, why do you want to be in fish and wildlife if you don't fish or hunt? Yeah. You know? And so well, that's that's not right either. Yeah. Unfortunately, my undergrad advisor, whose research lab I got into after like a year of trying to get in, uh, she hates fishing. She hated <laughs> fishing. Like, but she had like, it was so when I was like, oh, I don't, I just like the research and right. I like conservation biology and that's what I'm really into, but I don't, she was like, don't like to fish. Yeah. Whatever. Well, that's like, okay. It's... I mean, you can be interested in fish. You can be interested in the conservation of fish yeah. and you don't have to fish. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that look at birds that don't go bird hunt. Yeah. I love right? birding. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. How about any other hurdles? I would say I kind of playing into that, same theme maybe of not belonging is just being a woman in fisheries. And as I started my career and taking classes, getting those internships and kind of running into some like sexism from the public, from supervisors, from a lot of different angles, just not yeah, Like not having, a lot of other women around in that field, it, there was kind of a range of like one extreme being like, well, you don't, you can't do the work, so you shouldn't be here. Like, I'm just going to give opportunities to other male interns, or I don't think you're capable of doing this, so I'm going to just pass you over for opportunities. And you really have to fight to get what you think. You're like, I'm here to work. I'm going to do the work. And you have to fight harder to get that like baseline experience that a male intern would automatically get and then ranging to interacting with the public and just not being taken seriously not being uh, when I was a watercraft inspector a lot of times people just wouldn't take me seriously in any context and basically ignore everything I said and maybe it's something to do with my personality but that's the way it is so and so you experienced sexism at a, at a couple different levels. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's so, yeah, like from maybe supervisors that just had never really had female interns trying to break into that and get opportunities in public, just not taking you seriously. And then having peers that kind of like this kind of isolated elitist group where like, you don't belong here. Like I've been doing this my whole life and you're just some girl who decided she wanted to work with fish yeah. like that's as valid as any reason you could come up with <laughs> exactly exactly and that's a i mean that's a tough hurdle and it's un it's really unfortunate that that occurs in our profession and i know it's not just not just our profession but there's other professions that have the same issues um I, I, and, you know, I have a hard time speaking to that because I've never experienced that. <clears throat> and I would hope that this is an opportunity for our listeners and uh, to get the message out that 
sexism still occurs in our profession. Um, I've been doing this profession for 25 years and I've seen a, a change in our profession in terms of um, uh, the diversity, certainly with um, with women being more present in our profession, which is great. And I think we just really got to work on some of these things so this isn't a hurdle. And hopefully in, you know, it'd be great in the next year or the next five years, I, you know, interview uh, women for this podcast and we don't ever have to hear about this again. Yeah. And I think too, it's good to acknowledge that while it can be really difficult for women to get in this field, I'm white too. And it's right. probably 10 times as difficult for a woman of color or people of color to break into this field as well. Exactly. So I think that's important to acknowledge that mm-hmm. while it was tough sometimes, I always knew like my my upbringing and everything about me really prepared me really well to be able to handle those challenges and move on. And it just made me kind of angsty and like want to prove everybody wrong. But a lot of people don't have that confidence or can't afford to work for free for a long time. Like it's kind of expected of you in fisheries. Like I worked for free for basically two years before I got a job. And a lot of people can't do that. So I think that's, there are a lot of, there's been a lot of growth in fisheries, but I think there's so much room for improvement to keep making diversity, keep improving our diversity, Very more diversity. So. Yeah, agree. I'm here with uh, Taylor Proyle, and she is a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. Um, Taylor, so let's talk a little bit, switch gears and talk a little bit about your research. So what are you working on? So I'm working with a conservation hatchery, um, Sokokanee Springs, up near Hungry Horse with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, working on just kind of the whole West Slope Cutthroat Trout restoration project. Um, And they've been having issues when they bring wild fish into the hatchery that they don't have very good reproductive success and just kind of looking for why this is happening. Mm Mm-hmm. And so they bring them into the hatchery, um, they spawn them, and then their their progeny are young. They stock back out and to, to restore West Slope cutthroat trout populations in the drainage. Yeah, and a lot of times fish have been removed, whether they might have been intergressed with rainbow trout mm-hmm. or maybe they're starting to get into an inbreeding depression. They use these fish from other drain from other tributaries to supplement or replace populations that were lost or struggling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you're looking at, um, you said reproductive success. Yeah. And so you're looking at the factors that are influencing reproductive success. Yeah. And and really just trying to understand. So a lot of the research on the upper, on the flathead has been on the genetic diversity and quantifying you know, what do we even have? We have all these tributaries have been isolated for such a long time. Like how, so the evidence really indicates that these streams have very locally adapted fish. And now research is coming out, you know, that this can correlate to phenotypic diversity as well. And so really with this issue in the hatchery is just quantifying like what the phenotypic diversity is in these po- in in the population itself up between populations that might be causing some of these reproductive failures 
And those can be traits. We're looking at whole whole organism factors, like different physiological and behavioral factors that might might indicate that a fish won't do well in captivity, which is what I'm thinking is at least part of the cause Mm -hmm. for why they're not reproducing is that just some fish, when you're in, you go from your beautiful wild stream (laughs) to a concrete raceway. It's it's stressful and stress plays a huge role in reproduction. So if fish Mm. are being outcompeted or they're just chronically stressed, this might be playing a big role in why they're not reproducing. Yeah, that's very interesting. So what kind of things are you measuring to evaluate this? So you have the fish in the in the hatchery and you're measuring you're measuring I guess metrics or characteristics of those fish to get a, a this phenotypic profile. You think? Yeah, so we're actually going to start with a totally new source and a totally new cohort. So we're going to track fish once in their wild condition, we're going to take different measurements. Um, and I'm calling it a phenotypic profile because there wasn't a kitschy phrase available. <laughs> uh, so you, it's just a combination of behavior, morphology, and physiology. So for behavior, what I'm thinking we'll do is do like a novel arenas. And you put a bunch of fish in this arena, see how they compete for prime habitat on prime habitat. How do they... What is their boldness? Like, how likely are they to explore new territory? Because the literature really indicates that that can be linked strongly to physiological status, such as, like, metabolic rate, um, different stress reactivity. So, like, a fish that is very bold and aggressive might have a higher metabolic rate and then might be like less stimulated by stress. Like its stress response might be of a lower magnitude Mm -hmm. than a fish, a different kind of fish. So you're then you would kind of predict that those might do better. Yes. So, and you would think that maybe a bolder, more aggressive fish will probably compete better in a hatchery environment, especially because it's so novel that a fish that is maybe less aggressive. Um, it, that fish that's less aggressive is probably so freaked out by being in a novel environment like a hatchery that it just all kind of like builds up. So like one, I'm now I'm with all these really aggressive fish and they're beating me up and they're out, I'm being outcompeted for food, but now I'm super stressed out. So I'm using more energy. So I need more food. And then it just kind of, spirals Mm -hmm. so what's the why is this so important to know what's kind of the what's kind of the um, important aspect of this i think for one it can address a management concern in real time hopefully if we can at least i would really it would be really nice if you could so i'm thinking you know if you take a blood sample at hatchery entry and I'm using metabolomics potentially to assess stress. If you take a blood sample in the field, you're like, oh, this fish is going to end up being really big and aggressive. Maybe you could, from the beginning, individualize care for different kinds of fish. Oh, nice. That's like yeah. ideally. I no, don't, I don't know. I mean, that's um, 
that's certainly novel in terms of my understanding of kind of hatcheries in that, you know, you would have kind of be able to individualize care for certain fishes to to get, in this case, you know, more reproductive success or less stress, those kinds of things. That's really, I think, neat. Oh, I've never thanks. heard of that before. And I, well, the whole <clears throat> premise of these hatcheries is that they're conservation hatcheries. They're really looking to not apply any artificial selection to their broodstock. And so if if maybe, let's just say, a certain type of fish isn't reproducing, those are phenotypes that aren't going to be present in the future generation. So if, if your whole mission is like not to impact that, right. then that is against your mission. Right, right. And then I think on top of addressing like this real management concern, I think too, it, it just really informs us about the type of diversity that we have present in our streams. And I think it's kind of a cool, like new, I don't want to say like new wave, but just really like fine tuning our idea of populations and like what and how we manage fishes. Like even though different tributaries might have different traits, even within those tributaries, those fish all have different traits. So if you're looking at restoration projects, not only do just it makes it more complicated. Like not only do you have to look at the genetics, but yeah. you have to look at all these different traits. And but I think it could help when we're talking about stocking efforts. Like nearest neighbor is kind of a term thrown around mm-hmm. a lot. And it, like basically the premise is like fish are so adapted to their streams. You want to stock a stream with a donor that most closely matches that stream. But like, how do you determine what matches the stream? Like the genetics, maybe you shouldn't use genetics. Mm -hmm. Like maybe there's a reason those, like who knows, or the environment, or maybe the phenotypes. Mm -hmm. It just gives us more tools when we're doing these types of projects. Yeah. So future generations don't look at us and go, geez, what were they thinking? You know, we're yeah. trying to trying to prevent that. Yeah. I and mean, we've had a lot of that in our profession. Like, yeah. That's what we yeah. do now. What were they thinking? I know. I don't want to be like the next rainbow trout stalker. Like, you know, it's a good idea. Let's put like lake trout in this lake. Like, I don't want to be that like yeah. that kind of person. Yeah. Um, you kind of touched on it, but what? would be the best thing you could discover in your work? I mean, just if you had a crystal ball and you're like, all right, I'm going to, this is the best thing. I think really like giving managers a really good, good tool that they can use to like inform their management strategies Mm -hmm. or inform what they're doing. That would be so (laughs) (laughs) cool. Right. You were talking about, um, you, you were drawing blood or you were doing metabolites. Is that what you said? Yes. I, I think what we're, because initially I was leaning towards using cortisol, like mm-hmm. blood plasma cortisol, but that's not really a realistic way for a manager to measure stress. Well, that's where I was going with this question. I mean, you think about folks, you know, I'm thinking about myself here. If I was up there managing, I don't have the understanding of fish physiology that you do. So am I going to have to draw blood and then run these tests before I can make a, a determination about that fish? Or is there something that's a surrogate or correlated with that, that, that I could look at that fish and go, yeah, this one's going to work. This one's probably not going to do so well. And part of 
my project that I, I didn't really highlight as much is we're also using morphology and geometric morphometrics. So I'm, I'm hoping like you could take blood and incongruence. Maybe there's some difference between the orbital structure yeah. of different fish. Like yeah. that would be really cool that to be, find something right. like that. And then I could take my iPhone out, take a picture of yeah. it and it'd be like green, go red. No. Exactly. <laughs> like because these managers are, they have a certain cap on what they can pull from each stream. Mm-hmm. So like, and that's for, to, to get them, you know, remove the minimum amount of fish while getting the maximum yeah, exactly. representation of genetic diversity. Yeah. And so if, if you could just go into the field and know and you have to be so effective and so efficient with the number of fish you can pull, you could, you could be that efficient in the field, but yeah, that would be outstanding. That would be like, yep. So crazy. There you go. Okay. We're going to finish up here so you can get to work on it. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to finish up here, but we have one last question, kind of our softball fun question. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much of a softball it is, but um, we like to ask everybody what's their favorite plant or animal, or you can pick both if you want. So I really love sphagnum moss. That's, I, that's a first. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just think, well, one, I think mosses are really cool yeah. and they are everywhere. And growing up, I had a swamp behind my house that I would play in all the time and it was just covered in sphagnum. So you could just like, nap anywhere like it was just beautiful (laughs) and then also it's kind of metal too like it's a soft cute moss but um peat bogs are really prevalent Mm -hmm. where i'm from and because of sphagnum it it makes the water so acidic that bodies don't decompose (laughs) and i just thought that was really metal like it's like the dichotomy of this so beautiful cute plant like (laughs) so nice and preserving dead bodies preserving dead bodies i think it goes back to that teacher you had and the algae and all that yeah. that you're like okay um any animal no animal mm. nothing okay. i think what i picked the first day of class was a coyote oh yeah that's I right i really love coyotes <laughs> well um Taylor, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today, and I wish you the best in your studies at Montana State University and your research on uh, reproductive success of West Slope cutthroat trout. Thanks for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science, and please spread the word about this podcast.